We've been talking about a variety of different associations, including the immigrant groups we've just been dealing with, the Phoenicians and Syrians, and then Judeans, and looking at how associations interact with the society around them, including these immigrant groups, the, f the different uh, processes of acculturation and dissimulation that was going on. Now we move on to looking at a particular example of an offshoot, you could say, of Judean culture and an example of a cultural minority group within the Roman Empire that is devoted to the Judean God in some form, but that goes in a new direction as time goes on, namely the followers of Jesus. We're looking at example of the early Jesus groups and how they can be looked at as associations within the Roman Empire. We've already set the stage for that earlier on in this whole series, by looking at how both Judean groups and Christian groups can be viewed as associations. Now we're finally getting, going to get into some of the evidence for these groups of Jesus followers and how they relate to surrounding society. And this will allow us to compare the different associations we've looked at. This first episode on the Jesus groups is very introductory. So in a way, if you've been listening to other series in the podcasts regarding the early Jesus groups, and especially the uh, series on Paul, for example, you won't gain a whole lot of new knowledge from this particular episode. You might even want to skip on to the next episode. So this episode simply introduces the early Jesus groups for those of you who are only listening to this particular series and sort of places it within the context of our discussion of associations and Judeans within the Roman Empire. So I hope you enjoy this 15 minute or so introduction to the Jesus groups within the Mediterranean world. In the next episode, we begin to look in more detail at some of the evidence for how these associations, how these cultural minority groups um, are finding a place for themselves while also uh, distinguishing themselves in other respects within the cities of the Roman Empire. So what we've been doing with these last couple weeks has been looking at cultural minorities and immigrant associations and seeing the ways in which we can see both assimilation and dissimilation. That sort of sociological question of how do particular associations relate to surrounding society? How a particular group or an individual is adapting and adopting cultural practices from this host society and to what degree they're distinguishing themselves from the host society and keeping their own customs from the homeland or customs from their minority cultural group. And so there's that dynamic of both preserving your identity and, to, and in other respects, finding a home for yourself in the new place where you're living. And we're seeing that dynamic taking place with different groups. Today we're turning to groups of Jesus followers who are not necessarily immigrant groups. Some of them are. Some of them are Judeans. So it's just another case of a Judean group sometimes. But Jesus followers are often a mixture of Judeans and Greeks and Romans and Syrians or whatever it may be who have joined a cultural minority, who have joined a group who honors the Judean God and who adopts Judean customs in some respect. So we're sort of continuing our discussion of Judean synagogues. So let me say a few words of introduction about the early Jesus movements before we go on to looking at how groups of Jesus followers, associations of Jesus followers, how they relate to surrounding society, 
and what diversity of uh, sort of dynamics of that relation we find. The Jesus movement's origins are within Judean culture, and, they, and the Jesus groups, or associations devoted to Jesus, continue to have close connections with Judean culture in various ways, even if they're Gentile, even if they're not actual Judeans practicing these things. In a sense, the God-fearers that we began to learn about Gentiles, non-Judeans, attracted to honoring the Judean God, or attracted to hanging out at the synagogue, or attracted to being circumcised and joining the synagogue and, and following the Judean law to the full, that sort of range of possibilities, those God-fearers help you to understand what Christianity is. In a way, the early Jesus movements are, many of them, groups of God-fearers groups of Gentiles devoted to the Judean God. There's a diversity of ways in which these early Jesus groups relate to Judean culture. First of all, you have a scenario where you have a group of Judeans. Remember, Jesus was a Judean, Galilean Judean. All the earliest followers of Jesus were Galileans or Judeans. The earliest promulgators of this movement, people like Paul, were Judeans. Uh, the, the place where uh, the Jesus movements first arose, in many cases, but not all, were places where there were Ju diaspora Judean groups already. This is the Judean phenomenon. So there's some uh, groups of Jesus followers that are literally entirely ethnic Judeans, people literally from Judea, who now adopt Jesus as a Messiah in some way, a Messiah, an anointed one, or a kingly sort of figure in some way. Then there are groups of Jesus followers that consist either of a mixture of Judeans and Gentiles or of more Gentiles than Judeans or entirely Gentiles. Gentiles is just the Judean word for everyone else, right? But we're using it here in a scholarly way. Uh, Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Phoenicians, those are all Gentiles, right? And depending on what the balance of membership is in terms of Gentile versus Judean in a particular Jesus group, you could imagine the way in which the Judean heritage and the way in which Judean customs would be viewed might be different depending on which Jesus group you're looking at. In other words, if you have half Judeans and half Gentiles, that might be different in terms of how they view the Judean heritage and Judean Torah and Judean culture, and Judean customs, and the Judean temple before it's destroyed in 70, that, that might impact how a particular Jesus group views those things. So there's all kinds of possibilities in, in that respect. When you get to more entirely Gentile groups of Jesus devotees, you can still have a strong sense of attachment to Judean culture. In fact, scholars have studied this phenomenon and they've come up with a label for it. Gentile Judaizers. You can have an entire group of all Gentiles who are following Jesus, and following Jesus as God, the Judean God, and who follow the customs of the Torah to the T, and who are circumcised, and follow the food laws of the Torah. You know, it's an example of God-fearers. Gentiles who are attracted to the Judean God, but they also happen here in this case to believe Jesus was sent by the Judean God, and they still follow Judean customs. Take Galatia as an example. You guys know Galatia. So Galatia's in central Turkey. 
the question you had was to do with how people viewed these Gentiles who are yeah. joining a movement. The letter that Paul writes to these Christians in Galatia illustrates it well. Paul did not require circumcision in order for someone to belong to a group of Jesus followers. He required they follow the Torah in other respects, but not the food laws and not circumcision. In his letter to Galatia, we start to see that other leaders of the Jesus movements think, how can you belong to God's people and not have the central symbol given to Abraham of, of belonging to God's people, circumcision. So in the Hebrew Bible, in the Torah, that's sort of the symbol of belonging to God's people. And so these other people who follow Jesus, leaders, who come through Galatia, are upset to find that the converts of Paul are not circumcised. And they advocate circumcision. And so there's even some Gentile Judaizers there, too, that are following Judean customs. There's sort of a split in the churches there over this whole issue of what aspects of the Judean of Judean customs do we need to follow and which ones do we not need to follow in order to belong to a group of Gentile Jesus followers. And so there's debates on that. So the answer to your question is it depends which author you're reading from early Christianity and depends even in the in a writing by an author you can read between the lines and find the other opinions in there. Not everyone agreed. So hopefully I've underlined enough so far this whole idea that Jesus movements emerge within Judean culture and some of them more than others stick with Judean culture. They all do to some degree, but it's a pick and choose sort of issue of what Judean customs will this Jesus group do and not do? What Judean customs will this group do and not do? Let's go on to the dissemination of this Judean movement. So it begins in, uh, remember Jesus from Galilee, supposedly grew up in Nazareth, is active around that Sea of Galilee. Some point, probably in his early 30s, is down at Jerusalem as a Judean, participating in the Passover festival. So Jesus is from Galilee, so he's a Galilean, but he's also a Judean in the sense that he's associated with the Judean culture of the temple. And he goes to festivals, and he participates and, and interprets the Torah, etc. So that's, he gets executed in Jerusalem around 30 CE, right? Jesus does. His earliest followers that knew him up in Galilee and, and, and still know him now are the ones that then start to share the news that they think he's raised from the dead. So they believe Jesus raised from the dead and appeared to them, right? So it's all Judean. And then there's a few Judeans who start to have a strange idea. Let's put it that way. The one we know most about is that Paul from Tarsus. Paul, formerly called Saul, was trained as a Pharisee. Pharisees were Judeans who felt that you needed to follow the law in your everyday life. It wasn't just something for the priests in the temple in Jerusalem. It was something that you needed to apply to your everyday life. And so Paul was one of them who actually at first um, was in, active in persecuting and, and capturing and, and trying to put down the Jesus movements. He felt that Jesus told him, showed up and told him, stop persecuting me, stop persecuting my followers. Not only that, but take this to the Gentiles. There were others like Paul that did that as well. Take a Judean movement to the Gentiles. But Paul's the one we know most about and seems to have been sort of the key 
figure. And so all of Paul's activity is focused his entire life after that point, till he dies, on taking the idea of Jesus as the Judean Messiah and the need to worship the Judean God, the one and only Judean God, Judean monotheism, and take it out to Greek cities in the Mediterranean world. He hopes to get all the way to Spain. He likely did not make it. But he, he does get throughout all of Asia Minor. He does go into Greece, including northern Greece and Macedonia. He does have plans to get to Rome the last time we hear from him. The common denominator of these movements when Paul goes places is Judean monotheism. When Paul, if you take a look at 1 Thessalonians, it's a good example of what he teaches Greeks when he goes to a city. If they're not already Judeans there, sometimes the groups that Paul forms are partly Judean and partly Greeks. But in, Macedon, in, in Thessalonica, they're all Greek, it seems. And he summarizes his teaching. He summarizes it like this. You, t you turn to the true God from idols. Turn to the Judean God. Is his main preaching. You Greeks, stop worshipping your Greek and Roman gods and worship the Judean God, the God of my homeland back in Judea. That Judean God sent a son. His name was Jesus. That son died and raised from the dead, he teaches. And he's coming again to save all of us from God's wrath when he's going to punish all of humanity. So that's the essence of what Paul teaches when he goes to Greeks. And, and you can imagine from what we said so far, the diversity of early uh, Jesus groups that result from this whole process. Of the, first of all, there's uh, Jesus followers in Judea itself and in Galilee who are Judeans. Then there's the spread out into the Mediterranean world where you begin to have Greeks, Romans, Syrians, who are also honoring the Judean God and, 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 and believe in the Jesus being the Judean God's Messiah. Um, so there's that diversity. But on top of that, if you look through the New Testament, just to begin with, but then you can go outside the New Testament, look at early Christian literature, read each of them and compare them one to another in terms of what they believe, in terms of what they say, and, and you'll start to see there's a huge diversity where one group disagrees with another on certain points, and there's differences of opinion on all kinds of things uh, that, you, uh, that you begin to see here. There's no one way of describing what early Christianity is. If I were to give a common denominator, it's that they worship the Judean God and believe the Judean God sent Jesus. That's where I would stop pretty well. That's what you can say is consistent about, well, even that, it's not consistent about those Gnostics and the Marcionites I mentioned earlier. But if I were to say one thing that's true of early Christianity, the vast majority of early Christianity, it's that. Worshipping the Judean God and believing the Judean God sent Jesus. Just a few words before we take a break about Asia Minor. Asia Minor, in a way, is a hub of early Christianity. Of all the regions in the Roman Empire, we know most about early groups of Jesus followers from Asia Minor. So it's a, and it's a territory you guys are already familiar with. So many of the writings we have relate to Christianity in this region. Philemon is in the New Testament. It's a little tiny letter. Relates to Colossae. Colossians in the New Testament relates to Colossae. Colossae is right near Hierapolis, that place we were reading the Judean graves from last week. The pastoral epistles attributed to Paul, First and Second Timothy and Titus, likewise reflect Ephesus specifically, it seems. 
They seem to have been written and produced in Ephesus and addressing issues in Western Asia Minor. John's Apocalypse, writing to Sardis, Smyrna, Pergamon, Laodicea, all on the western coast of Asia Minor. Joanine Epistles, most scholars, even though it doesn't explicitly say it in there, most scholars place the John the Elder who wrote the Joanine Epistles within Western Asia Minor. And First Peter, the one you read, it begins by saying provinces of Asia Minor. This next point is what we're going to learn when we come back, when we're looking at dissimilation and assimilation, namely the diversity in group society relations. How did these associations of Jesus' followers relate to the city in which they were living? How did they relate to the cultural practices of a Greek city like Ephesus? How did they relate to the honoring the gods element in the cities where they were living that you're so familiar with? To what degree were they working alongside their fellow Ephesians in the marketplace of Ephesus? In what ways were they refraining from certain behaviors and certain practices of surrounding society? What were those practices they were refraining from? How did one Christian author or one Christian member of a group differ from another member of a group or a different group on these issues? And that's what we're going to try and solve when we, get, when we come back after break. And I've already hinted at this because we've already talked about First Peter and John's Apocalypse briefly when we were talking about imperial cult and honoring the emperors. But today we're going to get into some other elements of acculturation and dissimilation. In other words, the ways in which these groups are maintaining their distinctive culture, which involves connections with the Judean God and Judean culture. And to what degree are they participating in the society where they're living?